Well, in the Bible, God judges individuals. He judges families, churches, cities, even nations. And I would assume that He also judges businesses and labor unions and school systems and civic groups and athletic associations. For all of life is God's domain. Starting here in Isaiah chapter 13, God launches a series of judgments against the Gentile nations of Isaiah's day. Making Isaiah's list are Babylon and Assyria and Philistia and Moab and Ethiopia and Egypt and Edom and Tyre and Syria. Tonight we're going to study God's burden against the nations. Isaiah 15 begins, the burden against Moab. Now understand, three nations bordered Israel to the east. There was Moab, Edom, and Ammon. Today this area makes up the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, a pro-Western monarchy with its capital city of Ammon, or Ammon. You know, today it's fashionable to research your roots, to track down your family tree. Websites like Ancestry.com utilize the power of the internet to uncover your genealogy. For some folks, this is a fun, this is a meaningful pastime. For me, I've always been a little leery of this. I suspect that I'm from a long line of horse thieves and swindlers. I'm not so sure I really want to know my ancestry. This is probably how most Moabites felt about their progenitors. You see, the Moabites were a people with some definite skeletons in their closet. Their family tree had some root rot. Recently, I read of a Michigan woman who gave her baby up for adoption. Sixteen years later, she tracked down her son on Facebook only to get romantically involved. She had sex with her own son. Obviously, this gal is one sick pup. She was sentenced to nine years in prison. But welcome to Moab's ancestry. For Moab was the incestuous offspring of Abraham's nephew, Lot. You see, physically, Lot escaped Sodom. But spiritually, he took the immorality of Sodom with him. And one night, he got drunk. And he ended up having sex with his two daughters. Both of his girls got pregnant as a result. The eldest named her little boy Moab. And the younger daughter named her son Ammon. And over the centuries, Moab and Ammon, they lived in the shadow of their next door cousin Israel. They were family. Nothing was really stopping Moab and Ammon from embracing Abraham's God and joining the worship of Yahweh. In fact, the law of Moses, in anticipation, Deuteronomy 23, had laid out provisions for accepting and assimilating the Moabites into the nation of Israel. You remember this was how David's great-grandma, Ruth, a Moabitess, became part of the lineage of Jesus. A Moabite is a member of God's family tree. God loved Moab and gave these people every opportunity to join Israel in true worship. But instead, Moab chose to be Israel's enemy and to serve idols. Today, when we think of Moab, it basically typifies the person 
who knows the truth about God, who has access to this truth, is surrounded by this truth, and yet never embraces this truth. In a spiritual sense, sadly, it seems the church today is full of Moabites. Well, verse 1 continues the judgment of Moab that began in chapter 14. Because in the night, Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night, Ker of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Ar was a city 20 miles east of the Dead Sea on the southern bank of the Arnon River. The Arnon fed into the Dead Sea. Ar may have been home to river pirates. You ask, how do I know this? Well, if you ask them where they were from, they would say, R, matey. Just a joke. The word Kerr means wall. We assume Kerr or Kirak was a heavily fortified wall city about 10 miles southeast of the Dead Sea. And here Isaiah prophesies that both these cities will be destroyed in nighttime raids. He says he has gone up to the temple and Dibon to the high places to weep. The Moabites served the idol Chemosh, a god associated with the stars, with astrology. Its temple was located in the city of Dibon. Now, ancient Dibon was the site of a famous archaeological discovery. For in 1868, there near the Dead Sea, a German missionary found an ancient stone plaque See, prior to this discovery, skeptics of the Bible doubted the existence of King David. He was only mentioned in the sacred scriptures. There was no extra-biblical corroboration until this discovery, the discovery of the Moabite stone. Written on this stone were the names Yahweh, Israel, and House of David. Engraved by the Moabite king, the stone authenticated A big slice of biblical history. It was a major discovery. Today, the stone, the Moabite stone, is on exhibit at the Louvre in Paris, France. Ladies, tell your husband you would like for him to take you to Paris so you can see the Moabite stone. And speaking of archaeology, by the way, for all you single ladies here tonight, you should know that an archaeologist is the best kind of man to marry. Did you know that? You know the reason? The older you get, the more interested he becomes in you. Good thing to marry an archaeologist. Well, Isaiah continues to speak of the coming attack. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Medabah. Remember, Mount Nebo is the place God took Moses to show him the promised land. He saw it, remember, but he never entered it. And this was the plight of the Moabites. They were so close to God's promises and God's blessings, but they refused to cross the Jordan and join their cousins. As a result, on their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. In Bible times, the shaving of a man's head or beard was a sign of grief or remorse or shame. Of course, today baldness has other explanations. There's one theory that At a certain time in a man's life, his hair starts to grow inward. If it strikes gray matter, it turns silver. If it strikes nothing, it just disappears. Uh 
I've heard of another explanation. Bald in the front means that you're a thinker. Bald in the back means that you're a lover. Bald in the front and back means you think you're a lover. (laughs) Baldness among the Moabites meant that they weren't thinking and that they didn't love God. And this is why they drew the ire of God's judgment and were put to shame. Verse 3. In their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth on the tops of their houses and in their streets everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Heshbon and Allah, northern Moabite cities, will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz, maybe 15 miles away. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. Death would have been merciful to these people. It would have been easier if the enemy had just put them out of their misery. Instead, life will become painful and burdensome once God's judgment arrives. He says, My heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zor like a three-year-old heifer. You know, a three-year-old heifer was prime beef. The idea here is that Moab will be cut off in the prime of life, at the very zenith of its national life. For by the ascent of Luheth, they will go up with weeping, for in the way of Hororanaim, they will rise up, raise up to cry, a cry of destruction. These are both places in Moab that I can't really pronounce. For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate, for the green grass has withered away, the grass fails, there is nothing green. Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. In other words, calamity is coming that will strip Moab of its prosperity. Their storehouses will be emptied. Their fields will be destroyed. He says, for the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Egleim and it's wailing to Bir Elim. For the waters of Demon will be full of blood because I will bring more upon Demon. Lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. No, there'll be no survivors among the Moabites. Those who try to escape God's judgment will be cut down. Now, aspects of God's judgment on Moab were fulfilled when the Assyrians invaded the region in 701 B.C. Assyrian troops met their match outside Jerusalem, remember. Emmanuel slaughtered the lion's share of their army. But while the Assyrians were there in the area, they were wild, violent people. They were marauders. And so while in the neighborhood... They wreaked havoc on the land of Moab. Chapter 16 continues God's prophecy to Moab. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 8, David attacks Moab, and he places them under Jewish control. And for the next few centuries, the Moabites paid tribute to Judah. But in Isaiah's day, the Moabites had rebelled. And thus here the prophet rebukes them. He tells them to send the lamb from Selah, or Petra, their desert fortress, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, or to the temple mount. In other words, they need to pay their tribute, the tribute due to Israel. He says, For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab, at the fords of the Arnon. 
the Moabites will be like homeless birds unless they realign themselves with the Jews. He says, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcasts, do not betray him who escapes. It's interesting. After renewing their loyalty to the Jews, the Moabites are given now a new job. They're told to hide the outcasts and the refugees. Verse 4. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Notice here, God says that Moab will give shelter to my outcasts. Literally, God's people. And who might that be? That would be the Jews. Now here's a passage that many Bible scholars believe has definite end-time implications. Here Moab is told to hide God's outcasts and provide them shelter from an invader that he calls, two names, the spoiler and the extortioner. Now understand, I am against all forms of racial prejudice. But history attests that there is something especially sinister, hellish, diabolical about anti-Semiticism. Persecution of the Jewish people is of supernatural, satanic origin. Revelation 12 focuses on a period of time called the Great Tribulation, the final seven years before Jesus returns to earth to establish His kingdom. The Bible tells us a lot of what happens during that time, both on earth and in heaven, especially what occurs at the midpoint of this final seven-year period. On earth, the last megalomaniac with intentions of global domination will appear. This is the ruler that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. He'll march his coalition armies into Israel and he'll surround Jerusalem. For he hates the Jews. His desire is to spoil life and prosperity for the Jews. Thus he's called the spoiler. This madman will enter the temple there in Jerusalem. He'll declare himself God. He'll desecrate the altar. That's when he blackmails the world into worshiping him. He extorts worship. People are forced to accept a numerical code in their hand or in their forehead to exchange goods and services. Isaiah tags him with the title extortioner. And yet while these events occur on earth, an even more profound development takes place in heaven. There God tosses Satan out on his ear. You see, up until this point, Satan has carried credentials that allow him to gain access to God's throne. But finally, enough is enough. After the extortioner desecrates the altar and defiles God's temple, what God considers holy, Satan then gets the boot. The devil now realizes that his time to play the spoiler is short. God is going to put him out of business soon. So Satan tries his best to hurl hurt at God. And so what does he do? Well, how would anyone hurt you? quickest it would be to go after your kids and that's what satan does he goes after god's kids revelation 12 tells us that at this point he'll persecute israel and the jews will manage to escape 
They'll escape into the wilderness, the Bible tells us. In Matthew 24, Jesus sees this desecration. He calls it the abomination of desolation. And Jesus says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, what mountains? The obvious answer for residents of Jerusalem are the mountains southeast, the hills of Moab. Today, it's the kingdom of Jordan. Halfway through the great tribulation, Jews will flee to Moab where they'll seek protection from the extortioner, the spoiler. Daniel 11 tells us about the Antichrist's march toward Jerusalem. He shall enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Three nations, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Moab will escape the persecution of the Antichrist. Why? Because they will give refuge and shelter to the Jews. Now earlier here in chapter 16, in verse 1 in fact, Isaiah mentions the city of Selah. It also goes by the name Basra, or by the name Petra. It was a rock, cliff city, south of the Dead Sea. It sits in a basin, one mile square, about the size of the old city of Jerusalem. What made it unconquerable, though, was its entranceway. Petra's front door, if you will, was a mile long, but only a few feet wide. It made for a great hideout. In fact, you've seen Petra if you've ever watched the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You remember when Indy rides his horse up to the cave where he finds the Holy Grail? Well, that scene was shot in Moab, in the city of Petra, right in front of the treasury, the facade of the treasury. Bible scholars see here in Isaiah that when Antichrist invades Israel, the Jews will seek refuge at Petra. Later in chapter 63 of Isaiah, the prophet describes the second coming of the Messiah and the battle of Armageddon. After the battle, the Lord is seen coming not from the ghetto, not from Jerusalem, but He's coming up from Basra, again Petra. And Isaiah sees the Messiah with his clothes stained with blood. You see, by this time, the Jews will have put their faith in Christ. And they will hide out. They will have gone to Basra or Petra to seek refuge. The Antichrist will have followed them there. And the Savior will have come to their rescue. Jesus will intervene and crush the Antichrist's army in a bloody battle. I read that in the early 1900s, there was an evangelist named W.E. Blackstone. He and other Christian Zionists realized the implication of these prophecies, and they stored gospel tracts and Hebrew New Testaments in the caves around Petra. Why? Because they hoped that one day the Jews who fled there would get them and, and read them and receive Christ as their Savior. I've never been to Petra, haven't gone yet, hope to, so I don't know if they're still there, but... That's what I read. Certainly they were convinced that these passages taught that future Jews would flee to the rock city. Well, verse 5 also has prophetic implications. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Notice the one who takes the throne is the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And he'll sit in the tabernacle of David. 
Now in Acts chapter 15, verse 14, James mentions two signs of the end times. First, God will save the Gentiles. Then, after this, and I quote, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. That's a phrase that gets lifted right out of Isaiah. The tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. The early church understood this prophecy as saying that after the church age, Jesus will return to earth and he'll rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And from that throne, he will host the world to come up and to worship him there in Jerusalem. Historically, the temple was toppled by the Romans in 70 AD. It no longer exists. And yet prophetically, from this verse and from other verses, scholars believe that it will be rebuilt in the last days. That an end time sign is the rebuilding of the temple. And today, in our generation, there is a very strong and very overt movement among Jews today to rebuild their ancient temple. In fact, today there are over 20 different groups working for its restoration. On our visits to Israel, we always visit the Temple Institute, where sacred tools and temple furniture are being fabricated. Priests are being trained. The menorah sits in the plaza outside its doors. A temple is their goal. And yet here is a detail that often gets overlooked. For Isaiah and then later those who quote him in the book of Acts, James and the early church leaders, they refer to God's throne as, and I quote, the tabernacle of David or the tent of David. Rather than a permanent structure, this future temple may just be as simple as a tent. People think that the temple will be a stone building that will take years to construct. Maybe not. After the rapture, the Antichrist could negotiate a peace between Israel and the Muslims that would allow the Jews to erect a temporary tent there on the Temple Mount. It wouldn't take years, but just days to erect a tent. Well, verse 6 speaks of the fall of Moab. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lie shall not be so. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail. For the foundations of Ker, Haraseth, you shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazir and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Therefore I will bewail the vine of Sibma. With the weeping of Jazir, I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elielah. For battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Because of her pride, Moab will be judged at the hands of the Assyrians. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting, nor treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kerheres. One of the most revealing indicators of a man's heart is his response to the suffering of his enemies. 
And here, rather than rejoice with a smug sort of satisfaction, Isaiah's heart breaks over the fall of Israel's cousin Moab. And it shall come to pass when it's seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. In other words, when defeat becomes apparent, the king of Moab will humble himself finally, but by then it will be too late. He'll pray to his false gods, his idols, but to no avail. God has decreed his judgment. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab shall be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. In other words, within three years of Isaiah's writing, the Assyrians will storm the land and penetrate the rock fortress of Petra. They'll destroy the desert kingdom of Moab. Chapter 17 is the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. And this is a significant prediction, for Damascus claims to be the world's oldest inhabited city. Many times in the past, Damascus has been destroyed only to rise from its ashes. Even today, Damascus is a city in the midst of war. A civil war rages between the ISIS forces and forces loyal to the Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. Isaiah 17 predicts the final annihilation of Damascus. He says, The city of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The cities of Aurora were the Damascus suburbs. They'll be turned into grassland. They'll be turned into the grassland, and they'll be sheep will just pasture there. They'll be no longer be inhabited by people. And then he says, the fortress also shall, will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Ephraim was another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's saying that both Israel and Syria will be judged by this same invasion of Assyrian troops. In that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob, still another name for Israel, will wane in the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. In other words, Israel as well as Syria will become weak and anemic. Its glory will pass. Its prosperity will wane. God does judge nations. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough Four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of, God of Israel. When we've been over to Israel, they've shown us how they harvest olives. You place a tarp under the olive tree, and then you shake the limbs until the olives fall off. They fall to the ground. Then you scoop up the tarp and you cultivate the olives. Implied is that here God will shake these nations. But he'll leave a remnant. There'll be a few olives left on the branch. A few up in the top. Even fewer down on the side. God will shake the nations, but there will be a remnant that will survive. In that day, a man will look to his maker. And his eyes will have respect 
for the Holy One of Israel. Oh, how we long for that day when people will look to their Maker and have respect for God. He will not look to the altars, to the work of His hands. He will not respect what His fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. After God's judgment, the Israelis left in the land will look to their Maker and reverence their God. And this all foreshadows the Jews of the last days. They'll put their idols aside. God will shake the world, and yet a remnant of Jews will survive. They will hide out in Moab. According to Zechariah chapter 12, they'll look to Jesus, the one whom they have pierced, and they will be saved. In the end, those that remain, all Israel, will be saved. Verse 9, In that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bough and as an uppermost branch which they left because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In the day you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish. In other words, the day is coming when the Israelis will tend their land, but they will forget their God. And here is a state of affairs that could apply to Israel today. During the 400 years of Turkish control in Palestine, oh, from 1516 to 1917, the Ottoman Turks, they taxed the number of trees on a person's land. This motivated the landowners to cut down their forests. And thus they denuded. They stripped the land of Israel of all vegetation, of the trees that used to grow there. But when the Jews returned in the 20th century, a massive reforestation program was started. In fact, to this date, the Jewish National Fund has financed the planting of over 240 million trees today in Israel. Today, visitors to Israel are encouraged to purchase and to plant a tree. And yet these Jews will be unable to enjoy their country's resurgence. For we're told, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. They'll plant, but when the harvest comes, a period of sorrow and ruin will accompany it. This may be on Israel's soon horizon. He says, woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. Rushing water is a biblical idiom for an invading army. Here he says that Damascus is about to be flooded by Syrian troops. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them, and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, an evening tide, trouble, and before the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Here the focus of the prophecy seems to be future. In God's final judgment, what the Bible calls the great tribulation, a revived Israel is invaded and plundered. Israel says, I, I'm sorry, Isaiah says here, by nations, plural, notice that. The world will rise up to rob Israel. But God will defend and fight for His people. Isaiah says, before the morning, their foes will be no more. 
Well, chapter 18 begins, Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Now, the rivers of Ethiopia were in the northern part of the country, and thus the land, the nation of Ethiopia, is beyond the rivers. It's also the land shadowed with buzzing wings. This probably refers to the Ethiopian fauna, its birds and its host of insects. The Nile Valley swarms with critters. But there are folks who equate these buzzing wings with modern aviation. And there's more buzzing aircraft in the skies over America than anywhere else. Did you know that there's an app today that identifies planes flying over your head at any time? <laughs> They'll let you know the flight numbers and all of what's above you at that moment. I guess so that if disaster strikes and you get hit by a plane, you'll know which one hit you. I don't know. Now, I'm going to indulge in a little speculation. I don't even buy it myself, but I'm going to throw it out there. But for people who want to find the United States of America in the Bible, I, I would say this is a good opportunity. I personally think it's a serious stretch. I'm just telling you. But you can judge for yourself. <laughs> I've heard it said, torture a text long enough and it will eventually confess. <laughs> in other words, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. That's why we need to be careful not to infer from a passage more than what's there. And yet I'm going to do it anyway. I, I, <laughs> God help me. And yet this nation in Isaiah and the United States do have some similarities. Again, I don't think this is talking about America. It's talking about Ethiopia. But again, if you, if you want to find America in your Bible, this might be a good place. Verse 2. This is a nation which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters. Now, you can travel from Ethiopia to Israel by land. You remember when the Ethiopian eunuch came to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8? He came by chariot, not boat. But this nation sends its ambassadors by ship. And until the age of air travel, the United States ambassadors traveled by ships to Europe and to Africa. Messengers to Ethiopia are told, saying, Go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin. And of course, Ethiopians are known as tall and smooth of skin. Manute Bowl of NBA fame was an Ethiopian, all seven foot seven inches of him. Ethiopians are tall. And so are Americans, by the way. Did you know that until recent years, we were the tallest people on the planet, at least per average? Today we've been usurped. It's now the Dutch. We've shrunk here in America. We've shrunk to ninth place. But we're known as a tall people. The description continues. To a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. At the time of Isaiah, Ethiopia was Africa's most powerful nation. In 715 B.C., a mighty Ethiopian ruler named Shabako conquered Egypt's throne. Ethiopian rulers dominated Egypt until 633 B.C. The Shabako was also a builder of temples. 
Notice, too, this country is called a nation terrible from their beginning onward. And this could certainly apply to the United States. Up until the conflict in Vietnam, the United States Armed Forces had never lost a war. In addition, this nation that Isaiah speaks of is a land the rivers divide. That was true of both Ethiopia and of the United States. Verse 3, All inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth When he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. And when this nation begins to flex its muscles, the nations of the world pay attention. And I suppose this too applies to America. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. And these are not good tidings. You want a cloud of dew in the springtime, not in the heat of harvest. This will destroy the crops. In short, God is about to judge this nation. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, He will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The beasts of prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. Judgment will come. A mighty nation will become roadkill for the birds. In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin, and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. And yet even after their judgment, apparently this nation will repent. Perhaps when Jesus returns, this nation will go up to Jerusalem. They'll come with a gift, and they'll join Israel in the worship of God. For Ethiopia, judgment will come before her repentance. Chapter 19 is the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. In the days of Isaiah, Egypt was a far cry from the Egypt of Moses' day. The nation had been fragmented by infighting. Egypt was weak and dominated by the Ethiopians. It was considered easy prey for Assyria. Verse 2 tells us, I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Well, that's what happened in the Arab Spring of 2010, did it not? We saw Egyptians fighting against Egyptians. The Egyptian mobs unseated the Egyptian president. He says, the spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their counsel, and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. Egypt was always and has always been a land of idols. Now in the day of judgment, the Egyptians will learn how little their idols will help. And the Egyptians I will will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. 
Egypt was conquered by many cruel masters and fierce kings in their history. We're told the waters will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. Now next to NASA's lunar missions, the greatest engineering feat of the 1960s was the constructing of the Aswan Dam by Egyptian and Soviet engineers. The Nile River is the longest in the world. It runs 4,145 miles in length. This dam is two miles wide and 360 feet high. It was built at a cost of $900 million. The idea behind the project of the Aswan Dam was to use the Nile as year-round irrigation and to provide electricity for Egypt. At the time, it seemed like a very good idea. The Nile is muddy, it's unpredictable. The Aswan Dam seemed like a great way of controlling a nuisance. That was the opinion of the experts in 1960. Not so much today. For currently, the Aswan Dam is viewed as one of the, busy, as one of the biggest ecological disasters in the history of the modern world. And these next few verses are so amazing. For writing 2,700 years ago, Isaiah predicts a modern-day calamity. Listen to his words. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will be withered, be driven away, and be no more. The fishermen also will mourn. All those will lament who cast hooks into the river. And they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed. And its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. You see, what the Gulf of Mexico is to southern Louisiana, the Nile is to Egypt. It's their lifeblood. It was their livelihood. And yet, rather than make money, the Aswan Dam became an economic disaster. Here's what the Aswan engineers overlooked. The Nile brings down large amounts of silt from the mountains. This provides food for the fish. When the Nile overflows its banks, it fertilizes the soil. But now, fishing is non-existent and the soil is malnourished. The lack of silt has also caused the mouth of the Nile that feeds into the Mediterranean Sea to erode. This has created saltwater intrusion and a poisoning of the rivers as it flows northward. Another problem exists. There's a snail that actually eats vegetation along the river. The silt used to kill these snails. And now because there's no silt, the snails can multiply unabated. You see, Isaiah saw all of these problems in advance. Notice verse 11. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. Isaiah calls the Soviet engineers fools. 2,700 years before they acted foolish. He says, how do you say 
to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Where are they now? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Egypt had a glorious past, but her modern counselors have been foolish. God is against Egypt until she repents. And she will, as we'll see. The princes of Zon have become fools. The princes of Noth are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt. Those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst. And they have caused Egypt to err in all her work. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither will there be any work for Egypt which the head or tail, palm branch, or bulrush may do. The building of the Aswan Dam created severe unemployment throughout the land of Egypt. In that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid in fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which He waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. Judah will be a terror to Egypt. You know, just as the Hebrews plagued the Pharaoh of old, modern Israel has also been a terror to Egypt. In fact, each time Egypt and Israel has squared off in battle, Egypt has lost and Israel has gained more ground. In 1948, then again in 1956, then in 1967, and again in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, General Ariel Sharon drove his tank brigade deep into the Sinai, behind Egyptian lines. The Israelis surrounded Egypt's entire Third Army. Finally, in 1978, the Egyptians gave up their desire to annihilate Israel. They threw in the towel. Anwar Sadat signed the Camp David peace accords. But today, the Muslim Brotherhood has revived hostilities toward Israel. Peace is now tentative. And perhaps Egypt will learn again very soon that Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Yet verse 18 declares, In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Cana, or literally Hebrew. Egyptians speaking Hebrew? And they'll swear by the Lord of hosts. Egypt will worship Israel's God? And one will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. Wait a minute. Wow. A spiritual awakening will occur in the land of the idols? Egyptians will realize that Israel's God is the one true God? They'll establish altars and memorials to Yahweh? That's what the scripture says. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a mighty one. And he will deliver them. According to Daniel 11, when the Antichrist army sweeps into Israel, he'll also invade Egypt. Remember Moab, 
Ammon and Edom will escape, but not Egypt. Daniel 11 verse 42 reads, He will stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Yet the Messiah, a mighty one as Isaiah calls him here, will not only come to rescue the Jews, but he will also deliver the Egyptians. And this, I believe, will stir up a revival in Egypt. Verse 21. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord, and He will be entreated by them and heal them. A great awakening, a spiritual awakening, is in the future of Egypt. God is going to do a great work there and bring the Egyptians to Himself. But notice the provocative phrase. Notice what's most provocative about this. Notice verse 22. Notice the phrase, they will return to the Lord. Implied is that Egypt once knew the Lord. Well, when was that? Now, most people believe that this refers to the early Christian era, when there was a strong community of believers in Egypt, in Alexandria, in fact. It's now called the Coptic Church. By the 4th century, Alexandria had become the African hub of Christianity and remained so for nearly 600 years. The early church fathers, Clement and Origen, were Egyptians. But there's, another, there's another possible understanding of this phrase, they will return to the Lord. And again, this is conjecture. I need to say, this is far more Isaiah than it is Isaiah. Okay? You got it? But according to Manetho, an ancient Egyptian historian, around 200 B.C., Semitic warriors conquered Egypt. They were called the Hyksos, or the Shepherd Kings. They were monotheistic. One of the things they did was to demolish the idols of Egypt. They appeared around Joseph's time. And it's possible that it was through the influence of Joseph that these kings, these shepherd kings, worshipped Yahweh in the God of Israel. Manetho also says that the Hyksos were responsible for the building of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And here's where it gets controversial. For some people believe that the Great Pyramid of Giza was built to teach the gospel to the Egyptians. Notice the phrases that Isaiah uses. A sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. What is that? A sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts. An altar in the midst of the land. A pillar at the border. Notice too this strange language in verse 19. How can an object be in the midst and at the border? Well, traditionally, Egypt is divided into Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. And Giza is in the middle. It marked the midpoint. In fact, the word Giza means border. The Great Pyramid hovered over Egypt when Joseph ruled, when Moses led the Hebrews through the Red Sea, when Mary and Joseph sought refuge from Herod. 
Imagine, for years, a symbol of the Christian gospel stood tall in Egypt, overshadowing all these events. You know, the Great Pyramid is an engineering marvel. It's 2.3 million stones are more precisely aligned than the tiles on the space shuttle. The pyramid was aligned with true north before the compass was ever invented. Inside the king's chamber of the pyramid, there is a box the exact size of the Ark of the Covenant. Its central passageway, the ascending and descending stairs, are set at an angle that points directly to the city of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. Theories abound at how all the other features and facets of the Great Pyramid point to Jesus Christ. It's just interesting to me that there is this big uh, memorial right in the heart of Egypt. And many people believe it points to the Christian gospel. It's also interesting that pyramid power is what? It's a, today it's a symbol for New Age religion and the occult. Is Satan trying to rip off one of God's symbols? A token of redemption being turned into an idol, perhaps? Well, chapter 19 closes. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. Apparently, in the kingdom age, Jesus will have his own DOT. And it will pave a road from Egypt to Assyria that will run right through Jerusalem. And together, the Assyrians and the Egyptians will worship God. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Isn't that amazing? When Jesus reigns, He'll form new alliances. Where Jesus reigns today, He forms new alliances, doesn't He? Just look at us. I mean, you couldn't get this group together without a fight breaking out for any other reason than Jesus Christ. He forms new alliances, new allegiances. Here, bitter enemies, Egypt, Assyria, Israel, will become allies. They'll form a three-way coalition. I love this. God will call Egypt, as well as Israel, my people. What a day that'll be. But that's what grace does, isn't it? It turns enemies into friends. It turns people who weren't His people into my people says the Lord. And there we have Isaiah chapters 15 through 19.